Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here is your 30-second summary. At the tender age of 15, Ida Lewis took on the weighty responsibilities of a lighthouse keeper, protecting thousands of travelers from the perils of the sea. As if that weren't enough, Ida personally cheated Davy Jones of further victims by performing daring feats of rescue on the water and became a national hero. The end. Let's talk about Ida Lewis. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1842, Massachusetts passed the first child labor laws in the United States, limiting children under the age of 12 to 10 hours of work a day. Ether was first used as an anesthetic. The first illustrated weekly newspaper, the London Times, began publication. John Greenow received the first U.S. patent on a sewing machine. Christian Doppler published a paper in Vienna stating that the pitch of sound from a moving object varies to a stationary observer, which became the first mention of what we know as the Doppler effect. The New York Philharmonic played its first concert. Mary Todd and Abraham Lincoln were joined in marriage. Elizabeth V.G. Lebrun died, and in 1842, the baby who would grow to become known as the bravest woman in America was born. Ida Wally Zeradia Lewis was born on February 25, 1842, at 283 Spring Street in Newport, Rhode Island. She's the second child of the seven of Hosea Lewis and Ida Hattie Zeradia Willie, or maybe... Wiley. This was a second marriage for Papa. He also had a son and daughter from his first marriage. The daughter of this marriage, little Mariah, died as a child right before the death of her own Mama, also named Mariah. Mama Zeradia, as she was known, was certainly familiar with the ocean as she grew up on an island, Block Island to be specific, about an hour south of mainland Rhode Island by ferry even now. Sit in the center of that boat is all I can say to you. I have never been so seasick as on the Block Island Ferry. Oh, I'm sorry. Maybe it was just a bad day or maybe the channel really is rough, but like chummed yeah. the ocean. It's a rough ride. It's a rough ride. There's no no question about that. Mama was the daughter of the local doctor. And I'm sorry to say that's about where the info on her upbringing ceases. Hosea was a revenue marine man. He was from New England stock and captained a revenue cutter, which is a ship designed for speed. Under sail, of course, there's no motors at this time. It's usually two-masted. And the purpose of these boats was to patrol the waters off the U.S. East Coast, kind of like an import police. They're looking out for pirates. They're looking out for smugglers. They're looking out for people who might have uh, contraband in their hold of any type. And they are boarding boats and collecting taxes. Basically maritime law enforcement. Right. Ultimately, after Papa's story ends, the Revenue Marine would be folded into the modern day Coast Guard. So think of Papa out there taking names and pulling unlucky ding-dongs out of the water. Um, (laughs) Brave, full of duty to country and fellow man. And then I wrote suntanned and muscular. <laughs> okay. Was it really late at night? <laughs> Let's not get carried away. I have no idea what Papa looks like. He's probably like an old salt with a beard. I'm always a fan of that kind of guy. There's actually another organized group that are patrolling these waters. That is the U.S. Life Saving Service. And they do just what it says. Boats capsize. Boats are disabled in any way. 
That's their job is to go out and save people. Those are the two organizations that formed to become the Coast Guard that we know now. Within a year after Mariah's death, Hosea and Zaradia were married. She was just 23 at the time. While they were married on Black Island, her home, it's traditional for women to go live with their husbands. So that's why they went and settled in Newport. Newport is a coastal town. It's at the tip of Aquidneck Island, which is in Narragansett Bay. We don't really think of it as being an island, but it is. And back then, you had to get from boat to get from the mainland to Newport. And we can thank a woman named Anne Hutchinson for founding Newport. She was one of the people who were exiled for their religious beliefs from Boston and moved down to Rhode Island. They found some land and some indigenous tribes who were willing to make a deal with them. And Newport, where we know Newport now, the land had already been cleared by these these tribes. So it was easier to put up, you know, a new harbor town. It was a perfect spot. Do you, side note, know if Anne Hutchinson was a Quaker? She was not. Oh, okay. She was, yeah, I thought she was too. I just thought about the witch of Blackbird Pond. I was just kind of wondering. Because of Anne Hutchinson and her friends who settled Rhode Island and Newport, with an eye towards actual religious freedom. Soon, Quakers and Jewish people were coming to Newport. And so the influx of people was a little bit um, across the board as far as religions go, which was great. You know, it was actually religious freedom. Cool. At home, in the middle of Newport, Ida and her older brother, Horatio, went to school. Rhode Island had made school compulsory up to the age of 16 for both boys and girls as far back as 1820, with um, varying degrees of um, enforcement. (laughs) They were right in the center of things. Wait until you see, Susan. We walked right by her house during our tour of Colonial Newport. We Um, did miss her her grave, though. That's a bummer. I know. I was like, oh, we were just there. Dang it. Well, Ida was, you'll read a tomboy, but I prefer allowed to exercise her own personal muscles naturally, just like a boy would have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She was allowed to play outdoor games and encouraged to use her imagination. Hosea taught all his children to swim, which was not actually a given for sailors. Weirdly, I never will understand that, that a large, large percentage of sailors did not know how to swim. Well, they're out in the middle of the ocean, even if they knew how to swim, that nothing's going to save them. (laughs) That's really fatalistic. (laughs) Sorry. And anyway, people in general didn't necessarily know how to swim they might go in the water and splash about but actual like progressive to a destination swimming was relatively uncommon even for for men that aren't sailors so that was interesting to me well newport itself was percolating I think, due in part due to heavy, heavy, heavy damages that were suffered during the American Revolution, the area had functionally missed out on the economic boom of the Industrial Revolution. The mills and factories and commercial activity nearby mostly landed in Providence to the north. But the silver lining to that is that Newport also missed the sort of ugly underbelly of development. There's no giant mill buildings rising up above the skyline. There's no factory chimneys belching smoke into the air and no chemical pollutants poured into the ocean. 
Newport stayed beautiful. Newport stayed pristine. How picturesque. Large hotels, I mean, 600 bed hotels for well-heeled visitors had been built in the decades past, catering to the upper crust from New York and Boston and the society families of the American South. Bellevue Avenue was already the place to be. The summer cottages began to be built around the time that Ida was seven or eight years of age. Unfortunately, the Lewis family had a genuinely horrible year that year. The eldest child, Horatio, died at the age of 10. Mama then gave birth to twins, or Irish twins, it's not clear. They were born the exact same year, one of whom died shortly after her birth. There, uh-huh. there had been also another baby son born between Ida and her next youngest brother. So three children gone, four in Papa's case. But yeah. I just can't imagine you're numb to it any any more than you would be today. No, I, I, I agree. Anyway, for the rest of this story, Ida grew up as the oldest child in a family of four children. Um, so there's Ida, the oldest, and then five years younger, there's Rudolph, known as Rude... Maybe Rudd. We can't decide. We're going to go with Rude since his name was Rudolph. Uh, seven years younger than Hosea. And then the baby Harriet, born when Ida was nine. Hosea also had a nickname, Hosey. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was cute. Hosey. I mean, that's dad's name. What are you going to call him, Junior? No, Hosey. Well, back to Newport itself, Newport's traffic was popping. Passengers headed for Bellevue Avenue, military traffic from Fort Adams across the harbor, and increasing amounts of commercial vessels. Well, this led the powers that be to commission a lighthouse in the harbor. A lighthouse marks the coastline for sailors and warns them against danger or leads them to safety, depending on how you look at it. A site out at Lime Rock Island was chosen. It took an act of Congress to commission this light, and it was going to be on a 13-foot granite tower with a glassed-in box at the top that would contain the oil lamp, the brightest light they could find. Surrounding this oil lamp was what's called a Fresnel lens. I know we've all seen them on little old-fashioned lanterns. It's just circular glass that goes over the wick, it works like a prism and it makes it as bright as possible, which is what a lighthouse would need. Yeah, the Fresnel lens can focus light up to 20 miles out to sea. um, And it's called the invention that saved a million ships. You may have seen plastic ones in those overhead projectors teachers used to use at school. Do they still? I have no idea. (laughs) No. (laughs) Uh, If they still use those projectors. Some of the younger people might have literally got no idea what I'm talking about. Um, I think they still sell them on Amazon. So some dinosaurs must still use them. But I have an old railroad signaling lantern right in front of me that uses the same technology. It's a way to get a tiny lamp to produce a large light. Lime rock is exactly like it sounds. Lime rock. Around it are shelves of lime rock. Very dangerous. Can't sail up to it. Good thing there's a lighthouse on it. It's about 600 feet from shore. Uh, did you read any others? Yeah, some said they it was 900 feet offshore. It seems to be a relatively simple thing to, to see. Get out your ruler or whatnot, (laughs) however you measure large distances, your stick, your surveyor pole, but somehow no one can agree how far the still existing thing is 
from the still existing shoreline. Rhode Island LighthouseHistory.com said 600 feet. So I'm going to go with them. And then hilariously, someone else disagreed and said, no, it's 200 yards, which ladies and gentlemen who have been to fourth grade, how many feet is 200 yards? (laughs) 600 feet. Oh, (laughs) Oh my God, my math. Wow. Yeah. 200 yards, 600 feet. Yep. So why argue, ladies and gentlemen? We can all get together on this. (laughs) I don't know. And why didn't I catch that in my head? Numbers. When the lighthouse was completed, Ida's oldest brother, her half-brother, Joseph Stockbridge Lewis, was appointed its very first lighthouse keeper. He had been on the crew that made it in the first place. But he didn't last very long in the job. There were no roads out there, of course. You had to row out in the afternoon and make sure the lamp was lit and stayed lit until sunrise. That's just fine in the calm, beautiful sweetness of June, isn't it? But what about the tremendous storms, choppy seas, freezing precipitation, roads? row, row your boat, Mr. Stockbridge Lewis. There's no calling in sick. There's no remote switch to turn it on. Well, hmm, how about this, dude? We'll build you a little shelter out there in case you have to stay overnight. We've all seen the first Harry Potter movie where they are literally in a lighthouse keeper's shack during a storm. It's not good. And there's no Hagrid coming to save you and take you to London. After only a six-month tour of duty, Joseph said, bag this or... What would he say more appropriately for the period? Blow this for a lark. (laughs) And he gave him his notice, you know, exit Joseph, who went away to the mainland and got married. His papa, Captain Hosea, had a lot of goodwill around Newport and a great reputation. And he was given the post when Ida was 12 years old. The pay was $350 a year, which in modern money is still not that awesome. $13,000. Nine hundred dollars. A lot of lighthouse keepers, due to the low pay, had to have sidelines, like they sold oysters, or they raised pigs, or their wife had a sideline, uh, owned a restaurant, something like that. It was a, it was definitely sort of a gig economy where you had to have a sideline to get along most of the time. Now, who knows? If Horatio hadn't died, all of this story might have played out very differently. But Papa often took Ida with him of an evening to help him with his work. Papa and Ida would row out to that lighthouse every day, twice a day, to do all the chores that were required to keep it running. And she was valuable to help with the rowing. Even though he was only 49 years old, Papa was already showing some signs of ill health. That's why he was so eager to get hold of more stationary work, relatively speaking. And what does a lighthouse keeper even do other than smoke a pipe like in the movies? (laughs) While they were out at the lighthouse, they would replenish the oil. It was fish or whale oil and not too distant future. It turns to lard. They use lard to fuel these lamps. They would need to trim the wick. They'd need to clean things. Not only is there salt spray on things, but there's also cinders from the light. They were to light the lamp at sunset and extinguish it at sunrise. And there was a clockwork pump to keep the oil or the fuel, shall we say, moving into position and A lot of times the salt would degrade the clockwork and they would have to wind it or fix it 
basically repair the whole tower when necessary, paint it when necessary, keep a logbook of weather, keep a logbook of supplies. They were responsible for the repair and maintenance of the docks at both ends and, of course, the boat and the stairs. And in this era of no iPhones, there was a lot of waiting (laughs) and looking out at the ocean. It would be very good for him to have a companion. Key to everything was that Fresnel lens. Without that lens clear and being able to project out to the ocean, many lives could be lost. It was an awesome and terrible responsibility to know that thousands of people depended on you to keep them safe. And not only is Ida learning how to take care of the lighthouse itself, she's also learning how to row even better. She's learning from her father, who's been spending his life at sea, how to read the waves, how to read the currents, what to do when the chop is really high so that the water doesn't come into the boat. He's teaching her those things and he's telling her stories, all those stories from all those years at sea. She's learning things like, how to save someone in the water. Like you don't pull them on the side of the boat, you pull them from the stern so that it doesn't tip the boat over and you're in the water yourself. So Papa was making her into a superior oarswoman. She was also known about town as the best, strongest swimmer in Newport by the time she was 14. My question is, what do you think she was wearing? Because I looked up swimsuits from this era and they are madness. It is almost like a giant bloomer suit made of flannel. Yeah. No, I think that's probably what she was wearing, which is making her an even stronger swimmer. Because she's fighting against like 20 pounds of trapped water. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Ballooning up around her. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, Papa, feeling some of the stress and strain his son had felt about the enormous responsibility to keep that light on no matter what, petitioned his superiors for a house on the island, and they actually listened. The note they wrote back says, This is a matter of difficulty during the winter storms. It seems the keepers should live on the spot. And by order of Congress, which is not something everyone can say about their house, a house (laughs) was built for Hosea and family. It was a two-story brick house. And we think about houses being built, how long does it take? We'll multiply that because not only do you have to bring the all the supplies, everything out to this island, you're building on a rock, a rock that's exposed to the weather. So you can't build a house that's going to blow away. This is a seriously sturdy house. And it had a very interesting and rare feature in a lighthouse, access to the tower and lens from inside a room upstairs. How about that for the commute to work? (laughs) The family moved in the summer Ida was 15 and Papa received a significant raise. He now received $560 a year, which is still pretty low at $18,700 in modern money. But now, the family had the reverse problem that they had before. Papa always had to ferry supplies from Newport out to the tower. And now, supplies are in Newport, and so was school. Ah, now the kids had to be rowed back across the water every day for school. And who did the transportation? Ida did the transportation. Oh, it was nice weather. It's fine. Papa would take over. If it got dicey, don't worry, later in the year. But alas, fate had other plans. Four months after the family had made the move out to Lime Rock, just after school had started, Papa suffered a stroke that left him paralyzed and unable to work. 
Ida, trained and knowledgeable, stepped right into his shoes. Unofficially, of course, because there's no need to bring bureaucracy into this. People don't have to know. Papa's still on the site. It's fine. Well, what it did mean, though, is that Ida had to leave school. I just want to take some exceptions to people who think she was nearly illiterate. The Newport school system was rigorous and wide ranging, and I, and I can't prove she paid attention, you know, <laughs> in school. Yeah. But I went and looked at the curriculum. There's a vast treatise about the history of education in Rhode Island with pages and pages about specific cities in Rhode Island. And you get to page like 421, not joking, before you get to Newport. And the last full year of school that she would have completed was called the high school junior class. And here are the requirements to graduate from the high school junior class. Geography, English history, anatomy, physiology, algebra, Latin, bookkeeping, composition, drawing, vocal music, American history, elocution, literature, and maybe French and Greek if you're a boy. Like we have not been messing around. Uh-uh our whole time at school. And I'm also reminded there was something going around about um, here's the average eighth grade expectations for education during the Laura Ingalls Wilder era. And it will boggle your mind how much they were expected to learn by rote. Right. Even in the school philosophy, though, they said that many people leave after the first year of high school and even more the second or third year. So it is the goal of the school system to not pack everything into the last years of education, to sprinkle it through the earlier years, to better prepare the students for whatever path in life they choose to take after their formal schooling is done. By that, it seems that Ida got a good foundation from wise people who understood both the value of learning and the practical nature of of their students' lives, which is pretty much all you could ask for in your education, even today. taken over the responsibilities of caring for this lighthouse as the lighthouse keeper. Now, no one's raising any eyebrows because women have been lighthouse keepers for a very long time in the United States. The first one was in 1776 when her husband, the official lighthouse keeper, went off to fight in the Revolutionary War. She took over. And there's all kinds of stories of other women who did the same thing. It was actually kind of admirable, I thought. It was considered a sort of informal pension program. Many times when the official male lighthouse keeper died, the position was passed to his wife in most cases, or daughter in a few other cases. Um, there were 221 female lighthouse keepers operating in the United States, with even more, almost double that number, being um, like assistant lighthouse keepers. But it wasn't only the lighthouse Ida took over, the school run remained hers also. And it was often a source of extreme stress for poor Papa, who was powerless to help. 
due to his bad heart. Again and again, he said, have I seen the children from the window as they were returning from school in some heavy blow when Ida alone was with them? An old sailor that I am, I felt I would not give a penny for their lives, so furious was the storm. Yes, sir, I have watched them till I could not bear to look any longer, expecting every moment to see them swamped and the crew at the mercy of the waves. I have seen Ida in the bitter winter weather obliged to cut off her frozen stockings at the knees. It was a mighty weight off my mind, I can assure you, the relief when Ida cried out, they've got safe to the rock. It wasn't just his family that Papa could see from the lighthouse. In a lighthouse, the combination of a high vantage point and the likelihood that your tower was originally placed near a dangerous place for ships in the first place meant that you were the only chance that a sailor in danger had of rescue a lot of the time. And that was spelled out in your lighthouse duties, too. And I quote, lend assistance to sailors and ships in distress. Ida and Papa had run the drills. Always be ready and pray you never have to use this knowledge, said Papa. But it's on their list of responsibilities because it's going to happen. And the first time it did, Ida was about 16 years old. There had been four boys that were sailing around that day in a little cat boat, which is a small one-sailed boat. They were sailing around in the harbor, and then they went out of the harbor, had lunch, came back in. It was just a day of sailing on this little cat boat called the Hug'em Snug. (laughs) That sounds off color, but I looked it up, and it seems to mean cozy. Yeah, that's how I thought it. How did Hug'em Snug? Oh... I'm like, gross, dude. And then I went, wait, it can't be that. No. They would literally have painted that on the side of their open boat, you know? Yeah, no, no, yeah. no, no, no. Um, it was in September and the weather was starting to turn a little chilly, but these boys were 16-year-old boys and they were going to do stupid things at some point. And the stupid thing they did is that one of them climbed the mast. This is a very small boat. So when his weight went up to the top of the mast, a boat that was already a little tippy was even more tippy. A cat boat is very shallow. And when he climbed up to the top, the center of gravity was just ruined and it waggled. I know that's not the official term. I'm sure there's... (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what it is. Waggled works. Um, and it started, each movement caused the boat to take on more and more water. And the boy's laughter soon turned to shrieks of fear. And the the boat capsized, 100% flipped all four of them into the ocean. Ida began to race for her rowboat. As the drama unfolded, the darkness had fallen. And with that, the temperature. Although it's not the temperature of February, it's September. The boys were trying to cling to the hole, but it wasn't big enough to get hold of. Um, It was too slippery to hang on to the edge. And could they even swim? We don't know. Many people could not. Remember, these guys were forced to tread water and they were in increasingly heavy clothes. If they were smart, they would have kicked off their shoes. Two in particular were, were weaker or not good at swimming. And they were already cramping when Ida got there and already swallowing quite a bit of water. And oh, I learned this the hard way. Real drowning is silent. And they now tell you that, you know, they all those PSAs, you know, real drowning is not like what you see in Baywatch or whatever. Um, I was in the pool with Jet and all of a sudden the lifeguard jumped practically right on top of me. A little kid, a little girl that had been literally like five inches from my back. Mm hmm was drowning and I never heard her. Oh, wow. And the lifeguard jumped out and saved her right behind me. I mean, I felt horrible, but she made literally no noise. And that's what happens. Like once 
your body senses that it has to conserve all of its energy for gasping for breath or fighting to stay above the water, you're not waving your arms and like, hey, oh, I'm drowning here. Yeah. Um, and if Ida hadn't seen them, they might have all been doomed. Yeah. Well, they weren't only getting weaker, weaker, but they were also panicking. So it must have taken a lot for her, who is the same age as these boys, to row her boat over back the stern, that would be the back of the boat, towards them and haul them over the stern the way her father had taught her while these kids are trying to clamber onto the side and pull themselves in. I mean, I don't know if she's hitting them with her oar, you know, just yelling at them and being really authoritative. But She was trained if they... If their hands grabbed the oarlock, she's supposed to hit it, their hand until mm-hmm. they let go. Yeah. Because one panicking guy up in the front of the boat will tip everybody over. And then who's going to be the rescuer? If you have to, you have to. This 103-pound, tiny, teeny, tiny person got all four of these teenagers in her boat and rowed back to the island. Papa has been watching through his telescope, tripping out. Um, This is the first time his daughter has had to do this. His training did pay off. Mm -hmm. But right when everybody pulled up to the shore, Papa evidently dropped the telescope and fell into his chair. He could not take it anymore. Like he had experienced the biggest stress of his life. Well, you know what? He knows what could happen. He knows, you know, more so probably than even Ida did. It's kind of like when we're teaching our kids to drive, we know what can happen when they don't look, you know, mm-hmm. that's there's that same fear, you know, sitting in the car. I, I, I hated teaching my kids to drive. I did it with all three, but I didn't like it. Um, so I think it was a lot of the same thing for Hosea. He knew what could happen. Ooh, that makes a lot of sense. So he's up there screaming yeah whatever profanities yeah his religion will allow him to scream because he has no brake pedal on his side of the lighthouse right. <laughs> that's correct that's correct she was able to row the boys over to lime rock everybody got them inside mama warmed them up with some hot molasses tea that was spiked with a little brandy that they kept just for such an occasion um They wrapped them in blankets and put them by the fire. The boys were very grateful, but they also knew they knew that they would be in a heap of trouble if their parents found out what they were doing on the boat. So they never told. They went home and they never told. Yeah, somehow they explained the wet clothing and the missing boat, although only one of them really had to explain that. And the crickets just chirped about the whole thing. I guess it comes down to what if we got in trouble or more importantly, what if we were embarrassed? Mm -hmm. A girl could save us. Yeah. Yeah. And so unfortunately, that kind of went into the mist of history. I read an anecdote. This this event happens much, much later in our story. But I just want to put it here because it goes with this set of individuals. Mm Mm-hmm. Much later, when they were approximately 50 years of age, this man was buying an Ida Lewis commemorative spoon for his wife for their wedding anniversary. And when asked why, he explained that she had saved him when they were both 16. And if it hadn't been for her, there would have been no marriage at all. So one of the guys was thankful, at least, and gave her credit for giving him the rest of his life. 
That was the first rescue. Flash forward to February of 1866, one of the coldest winters on record in New England. Three drunken soldiers emerged from a drunken revelry at a pub and looked across the harbor to home on Fort Adams. Mm, This is going to be a mighty cold walk around this crescent to home. Let's take a shortcut straight across in that boat. It was a small skiff, little rowboat, tied to the wharf right in front of them. I'm sure they planned to say they were borrowing it, by the way. Yeah. But these Egypts stole what turns out to be Ida's brother's skiff. It's Rude's boat. Um, these dudes were looking out one eye drunk. I mean, they had no business driving, if you know what I mean. One man stood up in the boat in the middle of the harbor and his foot went right through the wood at the bottom of the boat, which began naturally to fill with water. And two of the men pieced out. They jumped overboard into the freezing harbor. The third man's foot was stuck in the wood of the sinking boat like some kind of cartoon. And the tide was pulling him out to sea, luckily for him, right into sight of Ida Lewis, who raced down to her own rowboat and came out to save him. By the time she got there, this man was only partially conscious due to the rum punch or whatnot. He was freaking out. His muscles were freezing up and Ida had to deal with his dead weight. He was no help at all to him fighting her. Like, who did she think she was? I don't know. The whole weight of the boat full of water he was attached to for a little while and the freezing temperature. She was almost killed herself. It took all her strength and even more than all her strength as it happened to save this man. It was it was the lifting the car off the child adrenaline that saved this man. He never said thanks, by the way, and they had loaned him a set of Papa's clothes, which he never returned. The two other soldiers, the ones that jumped overboard, leaving their friend trapped in the boat, disappeared, never to be seen again. Dead? Probably. Or AWOL? Maybe. No one knows. They did not turn up for roll call the next day. If only they'd stayed with the boat, they may have still been alive. And nobody is reporting this, but poor Ida is stuck with a major injury to her back. It is going to take her a full year to recover from that one rescue, pulling that one drunken sailor onto her boat. Her boat, which is named Courageous Child of Columbia. Mm, I like it. I know. The Hug'em Snug or the Courageous Child of Columbia. Also, okay, look at this education level. Mm-hmm. Courageous Child of Columbia is is not an ignoramus. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. Okay. No, absolutely. Before the year was over, before the injuries to her back and neck had healed properly, another incident that I swear is true, but is also like another ridiculous cartoon. August Belmont, the papa of Alva Vanderbilt's second husband, Oliver, the personal friend of Jenny Jerome's father, the person whom the Belmont Stakes horse race is named after, <laughs> had ordered a prize sheep. Okay, these three farmhands in the middle of the day were herding this valuable prize sheep down the road. And all of a sudden, the sheep was all like, I'm out of here and took off into the harbor. I thought that was hilarious until my husband told me Chris had a pig that literally did the same thing. Really? Yes. I don't I don't know which one should go first. Had a pig that did that or had a pig. 
Chris moved from L.A. to a farm uh, and really went into a whole new world. Mm -hmm. I guess. Wow. Okay. These three boys knew they had to save that sheep. So they, too, just like the other guys, grabbed the closest boat, which once again was Rude Lewis's boat. And they tried to row out to rescue the sheep. But in the process, they also swamped their boat and it also capsized. So now sheep and three farmhands are in the water. These guys had never been on a boat. They had been running up and down the shore, freaking out because they couldn't swim. (laughs) And they thought this was the better option. Poor old Rude, man. My son Jet's Jeep keeps getting stolen too. I feel for you. (laughs) Rude didn't need an air tag like we did though, because it was very obvious. I looked over (laughs) just in time to see these dudes go A over tea kettle right into the water like I would if I tried to drive a boat. They were absolutely helpless. They could not swim. They were hanging on for dear life, screaming to the Virgin Mary to send them an angel, which I guess she did. Here comes Ida. Luckily, these guys could understand directions. This is the only silver lining here and help her help them get in the boat. Grab here. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, (laughs) Type of thing. But then she's dropping them off and they had the brass neck. Let's use an Irish phrase to ask her to go save the sheep. The audacity. (laughs) Of that. But she did it. She rode back out. She had some rope in the nautical world they call it line. She had some line that she wrapped around the sheep so she could haul it back to shore. Well, the sheep didn't have a gentlemanly bone in its body and fought her like the Dickens. I don't know. I don't know about sheep, but they remind me of chow chows. Like there's for a while probably wasn't even wet. But then once it gets wet, ooh, it's heavy. And it was angry, and she one time tried to get it in, and then she's like, nope, and towed that Alec across the harbor with its head slightly above water and dropped it off. No thanks from the dudes. No word from August Belmont, who in his defense might not have even been told about this in the first place. No. But nobody thanked her for A, saving them, or B, saving this valuable sheep at the expense possibly of her life. Things get more ridiculous, if you can believe that. A ship had foundered on some rocks in the night. Mama's casual glance out the window raised the alarm. By the time Ida got there, the hypothermia had set into this poor sailor, and she brought him into the boat, and he was completely unconscious, and he woke up as they were on the way to the lighthouse. No, no, no. Don't take me to the lighthouse. Take me to shore. Please, please, please don't take me to the lighthouse. Okay, if you're that concernicus, I'll take you to the shore. She did. He ran away as fast as he could go. And sometime later, like weeks later, Ida, kind of confused about this whole thing, got a letter from the owner that said, I would have given you $50, but you let him get away. (laughs) The boat had been stolen. And that was the thief that she had rescued. I think she's learning that rescuing people is very much a part of her job. And she does not come with your traditional rewards of gratitude. No, no, not at all. But then, just after her 27th birthday, came the rescue that changed her life.
March tends to still be full winter in the Northeast, and the icy spray was making eerie icicles on all the surfaces. It had started to snow, and the sea was choppy and high in the gale force wind, and poor Ida was very, very sick that evening. Mama had gone upstairs to do Ida's, I guess you'd call it the pre-check list. It was a couple of hours until they were to light the lighthouse and Ida was grabbing a chance at some self-care, as we'd say now. (laughs) Rare enough in this house, Papa by now is nearly unable even to feed himself. The youngest daughter, Harriet, had become chronically ill and in need of constant care herself. Mama suffered greatly from arthritis and a lot fell on Ida's shoulders, even in the house. And according to her own account, she was sitting down, putting her feet in a pan of hot water. And that's her break before getting up to make the family's dinner. (laughs) Ida. Take a moment. Suddenly she heard her mother yelling, Ida, Ida, run quick. There's men drowning. Once again, two soldiers from Fort Adams decided that the fastest way home was across the harbor instead of staying on the road, and a 14-year-old lad decided that he could pilot them. They all decided this was the job for this boy, so they got in a boat and they started going across the harbor, but the weather was so rough and the waves were crashing and water came into the boat, swamped it, and capsized it. So Ida got up and ran out, no shoes, no coat, straight down to the boat, calling for her brother Hosea to come help her. He was 20 by now, by the way, and strong. But it was Ida whose arms fought through the storm to try to reach the victims. And like she almost didn't make it this time. Um, Later in her authorized biography, (laughs) they get very romantical about this. Perhaps Neptune chose to be gallant and is not ashamed to confess himself vanquished by a woman's arm. Blurg. Blurg. (laughs) Perhaps that is what happened. Or maybe she's just a bad aleck and Neptune had nothing to do with it. So even though she's rowing a skiff with the wind behind her, she's kind of acting like Dory in Finding Nemo. You know, just keep rowing. One more stroke. One more stroke. You can do it. One more stroke. It was two men nearly dead from the cold, who had been about to give up when they heard a woman's voice calling and they thought it was their imagination. Oh no, it was Mama, there on the rock, pointing and indicating the approaching lifeboat. And it gave them hope. And then they saw who was rowing. Ah, she'll never reach us. And they began to lose hope again. By the way, thank goodness Hosea had come because the victims were frozen with hypothermia and unable to help themselves at all. They were dead weights. Normally, Ida would stabilize her passengers before heading back, but there was just no time. It was a race to get back before somebody died of cold. Maybe it would be her, you know, herself. Mm -hmm. Hosea kept bailing as the boat was taking on water aggressively. So that was his job. The dudes just had to be cold logs in the bottom of the boat. That's their whole responsibility. They did that great. And Ida fought to get the boat in. Fought. It took twice as long with all the weight and all the fatigue, and she was going against the wind. It liked to kill her. One of the men could make his way up to the house at the end of this journey, but Ida and Hosea, despite their own cold, had to carry the other one. And for a while, it was touch and go whether that guy would live. It's not like they could go get a doctor. But there was more brandy. There was more fire. There was more blankets. There was Mama and Ida fussing over these guys. So come morning, they were strong enough to get into the boat again so Ida could row them to shore. 
She's not strong. She hasn't recuperated. She's the one with all the adrenaline and all the physical exertion to save these guys. And she's kind enough to row them back to shore. Unlike the other rescues, these guys actually reported it, what had happened to them, to their commanding officers. They talked about the rescue to their fellow soldiers around Fort Adams. Everybody was talking about it. This time, unlike all the other rescues she had performed, the news got out. Boy, howdy, did it get out. At first, the local papers, the Mercury, the Newport News, the Providence Papers covered it. One of the officials at Fort Adams telegraphed the spectacular rescue to New York City. And a reporter from the New York Tribune made the trip to Newport to interview her and take a measure of the scene. This reporter, the one from the New York Tribune, made a connection to a previous lighthouse keeper's daughter who had been regarded as a national hero in England. Her name was Grace Darling. In 1838, Grace Darling was a British lighthouse keeper's daughter, and she and her father rode nearly a mile to save nine people that were stranded on a rock after a shipwreck. Because of this rescue, Grace Darling became a national hero. An unwilling toast of society. Poets, painters, and politicians. How's that for alliteration? That was just for Susan. Thank you. We're we're singing her praises, and she cemented her folk hero status, I'm sorry to say, by dying early of consumption at the age of 26. But such was her reputation and such was the sailor's love of her that a statue was commissioned to be placed in a visible place in the harbor so they could see her as they passed. She actually died the same year that Ida was born. I and looked, for... and it was like not reincarnation <laughs> no. since. <laughs> no, I, uh, Ida was born in February, and Grace died in October. Because I'm like, wouldn't that make for great reporting? But alas, it would. Yep, me too. Alas, the timeline did not align in that way. Um, however, they had to or chose to use engravings that had been Grace Darling's engravings to illustrate the story of Ida Lewis until they could get their own guys down there. So coupling her name with the name of Grace Darling really catapulted her into superstardom. It was irresistible for newspapers hungry for a story. The powerhouse journals, Harper's Weekly and Frank Leslie's Illustrated newspaper, followed up with sensational illustrations of their own and reporting that reached a giant audience and made Ida Lewis into a household name. Lots of honors started to come her way. She received a medal from the Life-Saving Benevolent Society of New York and a check for $100. And the Rhode Island General Assembly passed a resolution honoring Ida, which came to her formally written on parchment with a gold seal. Resolved that this General Assembly desires to recognize officially the heroism of Miss Ida Lewis of Newport in repeatedly saving the lives of drowning men at the risk of her own, no mention of the sheep, and we're proud that one of our own citizens, by her courage and humanity, have won admiration of the whole country. The commanding officer at Fort Adams sent her a letter of thanks. And the soldiers that she had saved had passed a hat and were able to collect $218 to give her as a thank you for what they did. Now, we're like $200, but it's nearly the equivalent of 5000 of today's money. And a gold watch. Yes. And then the city of Newport dedicated its 4th of July celebrations to her. 
Nearly 4,000 people came out to hear her speak on the 4th of July and talk about her rescue. And she came out, but she wouldn't talk. It wasn't her thing. She always downplayed it. She always downplayed her heroism. In fact, this is a direct quote from her. If there were some people out there who needed help, I would get into my boat and go to them, even if I knew I couldn't get back. Wouldn't you? Maybe not, actually, because she was presented with a brand new expensive rowboat called The Rescue with impractically red velvet cushions polished walnut, oars, and copper fittings, which almost immediately turned, what color, Statue of Liberty fans? Green. (laughs) It was a very fancy boat that cost a lot. People had contributed, including President Ulysses S. Grant contributed to this boat. The town was very proud of her, and they were proud to give her this token of their appreciation. The distinguished Bostonian who was given the task of presenting the boat to Ida said, On behalf of the donors and as their honored representative, I commit it to your care, knowing full well and wisely it will be used and managed by the heroine of Lime Rock, whose name and exploits will be preserved by tradition so long as any portion of the shores of Rhode Island shall be washed by the waters of Narragansett. She declined to take the stage. However, there was a noted orator and abolitionist speaker who got up on her behalf and knocked it out of the park. I think off the cuff, by the way, (laughs) uh, which is even better. So to save everyone from embarrassment, he got up and said... She receives this boat with pleasure, not alone as an earnest representation of the good feeling of her fellow citizens, but also as a means of doing a little more hereafter if the occasion should come in the same direction. She has fortunately learned to do what the proverb recommends as the height of wisdom, to paddle her own canoe. She will endeavor to paddle this one, and if any of you should be so unfortunate as to get into difficulty... So long as you can see this boat riding at anchor time, it will say to you, as boys sometimes say to a playmate who has fallen, come here and I will pick you up. (laughs) These guys have a lot of words. (laughs) Yes. And I love the fact that the man who received it on her behalf actually made a pointed response to the flowery language of the giver. And he said, and I quote, when she performed this duty, she had no thought of its being recognized. In fact, I believe if she thought what men would say about it, probably the act would never have been done at all. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So Ida gets into her new boat. I mean, she's grateful. She rows away from shore. So she's facing the crowd on the shore of about a thousand people. She stops and waves and and continues to row out to Lime Rock, where she ties this beautiful new boat up and rarely uses it. (laughs) She just uses it as her like her dress boat, you know, so a fancy dress boat. It's not a boat that she's comfortable in. First off, there's four oars. What is she going to do with four places to row? That's unnecessary. It's a narrower boat. It's a lot more tippy. It's got those velvet cushions. Um, It's just not the boat for her. She's not It's like when your mom tries to buy cool skater gear for you (laughs) online with good intentions and 100% misses the factors that make it cool or functional. (laughs) It's just like that. Unfortunate. So hooray, that's over forever. She thought, whoo, you know, hooray. Nope. 
Almost immediately, as in the next day, there was a steady stream of visitors. And I quote her again from her biography. Every Mrs. Astor or Vanderbilt or Mrs. Belmont you have ever heard of has called on me with whole boatloads of men and women who talked to me all at once and treated me as if I were a real queen. However, Becky Graham notes that they did not extend her any invitation. There was never an occasion where she set foot in any of the Newport mansions that we toured or um, visited during our trip to Newport. Mm -hmm. Everyone wanted to come see her like she was some kind of animal in a zoo, but she was not treated as an equal by those ladies. She had almost 10,000 visitors that first summer. There was hardly a moment she had to herself. Hardly a great admiral or general that hasn't been to see me, she said, including the new president of the United States, Ulysses S. Grant, who grossly was too busy to go out to the island and asked her to row in to see him. And she did, in her dress boat, row to see him, and he received her from his carriage. Gross Ulysses S. Grant, do better next lifetime. Yeah, but the line that went down in what he thought was history was him saying, I have come to see Ida Lewis, and to see her, I'd get wet up to my armpits as necessary. (laughs) She did get an award that she was very touched by, however, and wore this pin for many special occasions for the rest of her life. There was a society headquartered in New York City called the Cirrhosis Society, and its aims were to further the educational and social activities of women by bringing representation of women in accomplishment in art, literature, science, and kindred pursuits. They invited her to become a member of this extremely select group that was born out of rage that Charles Dickens had been speaking at the male press club and women were not invited. And so the women of journalism and science decided to make their own club then if they were going to be excluded from all opportunities like that. And she was invited to be part of this very elite inner circle of women. And she was very, very touched and wore their pin quite often after this. A lot of the time, her medals and things just went into a trunk somewhere. She didn't display them like most of us would, but she wore that one. More women that came to visit her, two famous ones, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, fresh with a glow from founding the National Women's Suffrage Association, came to pay a call on her in Newport. What a glorious figurehead Ida would make. She's competent and strong. She would really be a good representative for the suffrage movement. Ida was very pleasant with them. She talked about her rescues. She presented them with signed photographs of herself. And the ladies were very happy when they left. (laughs) Although Ida was not necessarily that happy. She found those ladies extraordinarily intense. (laughs) This is what Elizabeth Cady Stanton wrote later in her publication, The Revolution. (laughs) I rather think those men whose lives she'd saved were glad to see her out of her sphere that dark, eventful day. Imagine those men, saved by her skill and magnanimity, seated in her quiet home, warmed and fed by her loving charity, safe from danger, fully reinstated in the normal condition of ordinary manhood, holding forth to her on the women's place, her inferiority, 
What multitudes of men are strutting up and down the highways of life, prattling of their lordly gifts to reign and rule, who've been fished up from the pools of ignorance, disease, and vice, and their feet placed on solid ground by the heroism and self-sacrifices of women, who today will sneer at the idea of her holding a ballot in her hand. Like, she's not playing. She's like, oh, how convenient for you that a lowly woman was there when you needed her. Just like a metaphor for all of your lives, really. Ida was a little more succinct in her thoughts about the meeting. She said she'd rather do another rescue than visit with those women again. (laughs) (laughs) Poor Ida. Poor everyone. Sometimes you just cannot put extreme passion in an introvert's living room. No. Because they have to lay down on the floor after you leave. Well, and I'm sure that Elizabeth and Susan B. Anthony were um, trying to be very persuasive with her. Who'd want that? Well, I mean, certain types of people would get fired up by a fiery speech, but Ida retreated. They just weren't reading the room. And, you know, how could they? They just got there. And as far as they know, she's a fiery woman of action, you know, just like them. So no one was at fault, but their aims did not mesh. No. Um, Speaking of aims not meshing, people in general, even if they weren't famous, were irritating and rude to and around Ida's house. They stole stuff as mementos. They barged right into her house. They wanted to take photos of her or of her house or of her mother. They wanted to buttonhole her so she couldn't even get anything done. Remember, she was responsible for the whole household most of the time. She actually had to use some of her prize money or her award money to hire some help in the house because people wouldn't leave her alone. The worst part was the prank screams for help outside. Not cool. Not cool. No. And then they had the audacity to ask Ida to row them to shore. I (laughs) mean. Yeah. Vaudeville shows were calling. They were offering her big bucks to go on tour, speaking engagements. People wanted to hear her stand on a stage and tell her story. Well, from the 4th of July, we know that that's not what she wants to do. More welcome were other sort of tributes that came in the mail. Or news of them came in the mail. There were now two pieces of music named after her. The Ida Lewis Mazurka, which is a Polish dance, and the Ida Lewis Waltz. There were poems dedicated to her, published and not, paintings, postcards, letters by the hundreds requesting things, unfortunately, like autographs or photos or advice and offers of marriage. Sight unseen. Some with testimonials of their character from prominent members in their town. One guy sent his dad to plead his case. The father did. He came and he said, this is my son. He's a West Point cadet. Here's his photograph. And here is a letter of recommendation from a senator for him. You should marry this man. But Ida was already engaged to a man named William Hurd Wilson, who had been an acquaintance of three years or so. He had uh, been known to tie up his boat nearby, and they had a cordial relationship. There was a senator who came to call on her, whose actual sister was a lighthouse keeper, so he had a little street cred, and he tried to convince her not to get married by saying the following to her. Oh, don't get married. You will become a Mrs. Somebody rather than Miss Ida Lewis, and you will be forgotten by the world. To which Ida said, let the world forget me as it will. 
and Ida and William were married on October 23, 1870 at the Methodist Episcopalian Church in Newport. And like other ladies of her time, Ida moved to her husband's home in Bridgeport, Connecticut. She left the rock. And the whole operation was such an abysmal failure that she never spoke of her marriage publicly for the rest of her life. Two years of what? Loneliness, certainly. Homesickness, definitely. Or, as has sinisterly, if that's a word, been (laughs) alluded to, perhaps alcoholism or even spousal abuse. We don't know. She won't talk about it. All her brother said is that his sister and her husband did not get on and separated. That's all he would be drawn to say. When, in November of 1872, Ida's papa died, she left her husband and Connecticut via Con Diablo, Connecticut, and came back home. She was 30 years old. Ida took up the mantle again. Now, upon the death of her father, by tradition, Mama was to take over her late husband's responsibilities as keeper. However, Mama was the keeper in name only. There was a chance, however remote, that a man might be appointed as the official lighthouse keeper, likely after Mama's death. You know, but maybe not. But maybe Ida would simply be thrown out of there once her mother died and a new man announced. Now, could the government not appoint Ida as the official? It hadn't really been done that she was the primary, but that's what Ida really wanted. That was her deepest wish of her heart, a little security that she was the real one, you know? And the point was driven home to her just a little bit more when at 35, she had her next rescue. Once again, it's three drunken soldiers in a capsized boat in the harbor and Ida rowing out to save them. This one was really tough. These guys were fighting her. They wouldn't listen to her. And the weather was awful. When she finally got them ashore, she herself collapsed in bed. She had contracted diphtheria and running her body that hard just wouldn't, you know, it's not a good way to heal. And speaking of healing, biggest disclaimer in capital letters with asterisks and arrows around it. Do not try this at home. Do not recommend this treatment in any way for any condition. However, she being a woman of resourcefulness, knowing she was the one that was going to have to keep the light on, self-medicated her diphtheria by drinking kerosene. Yes, that's not bueno. No, that's going to slow down recuperation for sure. And so there was a bit of public debate right about now. So she's out of commission health-wise, and the word went around, surely we should give her a pension, you know, or something. General Ambrose Burnside, he of the sideburns, and more appropriately of the Senate, (laughs) knocked some heads together, spent his political capital to make her wishes come true. On January 21st, 1879, she was presented with a document that says, quote, you are hereby appointed keeper of the lighthouse at Lime Rock, Rhode Island, at a salary of $750 per annum. This appointment is conferred upon you as a mark of my appreciation for your noble and heroic efforts in saying lives. Signed, John Sherman, Secretary of the Treasury. Yeah, but he's appreciating the heroic efforts to save lives. What about the day in and day out effort 
that she is doing to keep this light on. That's not what she's getting paid for. I, I guess we don't have to look at that because she is now the highest paid lighthouse keeper in the United States. You know, though, this is actually, I think you've just gotten to the core of the whole women's work versus man's work, historically speaking, like the day in and day out unstopping mm-hmm. work gets very little recognition. And I think it's because there's no start or end to it. So she has a house that's paid for. She has now two tons of coal that are being sent to her a year, which is nice. And she's got that salary. So it's finally official. Although I would be willing to bet she has to row that coal over herself. (laughs) (laughs) Who's going to get it from the boat into the house? Now, this house had one fireplace that heated the whole two stories which was fine in nice weather. But as we keep saying, it's not always nice in Newport. And this house was very cold. Her bedroom could be like 30 degrees in the morning. Where you had to break the ice to wash your face. Yep. Speaking of ice, Ida performed another notable rescue that really didn't involve a boat at all. Curiously, it was winter and the ice tended to sort of congregate in Newport Harbor and butt up against each other and thaw a little in the day and freeze a little at night. And it it got to be this kind of weird Arctic landscape of strong and rotten ice that all looked very similar to each other. Although just like when you're in an airplane and you see the clouds and you think, oh, I could just step out and walk on them. Well, I mean, say it with me, some more drunken soldiers. See, it seems to me they don't have a drowning problem. They have a drinking problem yes um they decide that they're gonna just walk across the ice because there it is and it's a shortcut Mm. no wonder that she was an advocate for temperance her whole life by the way so they decided to just walk across and they of course fell through the rotten ice she grabbed a clothesline she headed out to the ice she called her brother to come this was rude at the time his name rude not uh it's very confusing (laughs) (laughs) I'll just call him brother at this point. Um, She called to her brother, but didn't waste time waiting for him to come. She ran out to the ice and laid down flat like you're supposed to. And they kept not understanding her instructions. I get it. They're panicking. They're drunk. They've fallen through the ice. It's a desperate situation if you fall through the ice because you could get swept far away from the hole that you can get out of and breathe out of. It's really a desperate situation. And they were not behaving the way she needed them to and ultimately ended up pulling her bodily into the freezing water, fully dressed. She did have the wherewithal to let go of the rope as she was going into the water. So that was one less thing she had. But she's wearing like 10 yards of wool skirts and under things, pulling her down. But she is the strongest swimmer in Newport. So she manages to claw her way back out onto the ice. And that's when Rude had showed up. And the two of them together were able to finally haul these guys one at a time out of the water. She received two tributes. And it is a guess to me which one she liked more. The first is a letter from one of the soldier's mothers that she had saved. Dear good brave woman, what can I say? What can I do? For I cannot thank you half enough on paper for saving the life of my dear boy. Only last Sunday I was reading of your bravery in rescuing two men. I little thought one of them was my dear boy. I have always felt a desire to see you. 
and if nothing happens, then I will visit Newport this summer. Then I will see you. But if you are ever sick, you should send for me. I will come and do for you. This is one of my wishes. I wish I was rich. Uh-huh. Well, you know, she didn't get a lot of thank you notes, and she saved that one for the rest of her life. And then, more formally, she received an award from the federal government. Once again, this rescue had gone into the newspapers and everybody was talking about it. Congress got wind of it. They started an investigation. They talked to witnesses that had recounted exactly the same story over and over. And after a year, she was presented with the gold life-saving medal of the first class for heroism. The government hadn't been issuing these for very long, and she was the first female. This award is still awarded, but the next female to get it happened in 2019. Man, this is the same medal. If you've seen the movie The Finest Hours about the Coast Guard, um, the most daring rescue is what the film says of the SS Pendleton in the 1950s. This is also the medal given to the people that saved those sailors, too. She also got a silver teapot back from Fort Adams again, which she loved and kept on display at all times, which is pretty rare for one of her keepsakes. She kept most of them tucked away in their original packaging in a, in a little basket with a lid. But this silver teapot was pride of place and uh, she polished it all the time and kept it nice. She made several more rescues up into her mid-60s. Ida could rescue some people, but she can't rescue them all. In 1883, First, her brother Hosea died of tuberculosis. Five months after that, her sister passed away from the same thing. Brother Rude went to sea as a captain and was often gone from home. And Ida and Mama led a quiet life together until Mama died when Ida was 45. And now Ida was alone with the light. She said, the light is my child and I know when it needs me, even if I sleep. As time rolled on, President Grover Cleveland made lighthouse keepers civil servants in 1896 when she was 54 years old. That meant that there could be a pension for her at this point. Not that she was ready to retire, but there was one that was available to her. Andrew Carnegie heard through very well-placed friends of Ida's that she could possibly use more money than she was getting. He had just started a program where grants were given to people, but she didn't qualify. However, he was so touched by her story that he personally sent her $30 a month so that she could put it towards her retirement. What she did is put it into a bank account in her brother Rude's name. But bureaucracy and corporate trackers and the advent of technology ruined up the last years of her life, as far as I'm concerned. She received some curt notes from young men demanding reports in triplicate or why didn't you use the new form in the future? You will take more care lest these offenses be entered against you in your permanent record. (laughs) The satisfaction Ida had felt for 50 years at fulfilling what she saw was a God-given duty to her fellow man was broken by micromanagement and bewilderment. I hate that this is what it has to come to at the end. Mm -hmm. Further stressing her out was a rumor that Lime Rock might be extinguished altogether. And when she sent a telegram to Washington asking this specific question, 
are you going to extinguish Lime Rock? The answer she got back was a definite maybe. They wouldn't commit either way. So that was even more stress on her. So Ida just kept on doing what she had been doing for her entire life. She said, this is home to me, and I hope the good Lord will take me away when I have to leave it. Her wish was his command, and Ida Lewis extinguished the light for the last time on the morning of October 21st, 1911. Her brother Rude found her, surrounded by firewood, on the floor. The firewood she had been carrying at the time that she had a massive stroke. And for three days, there was basically a vigil. Even Fort Adams stopped its artillery practice because they understood that it disturbed her in her sleep. Telegrams came in from all over the nation. But Ida Lewis died, never having fully regained consciousness. Three days later, on October 24th, 1911, she was 69 years old. They had to row her body from the island to shore. And her brother said of her leaving the island for the last time, that's the way poor Ida wanted to leave the light when she left for good in her casket. For her funeral, Newport shut down, stores closed, flags were at half-mast. She lay in state at the Thames Street Episcopal Methodist Church. She laid in state. She's just not a dignitary, but she's getting the royal treatment. Nearly 1,500 people paid their respects to her open casket at her funeral. She was carried to the Common Ground Cemetery, where she was laid to rest. One of her pallbearers was one of those four boys that she had rescued from the catboat all those years ago. When she was 16, I particularly say that it was the spoon-buying guy. He seems to have the closest tie and be the most thankful for her existence. Nevertheless, I think that's a nice full circle for him to have been one of the pallbearers. The city of Newport promised that it would put up a gravestone for her. But there, a couple months passed and there was a lot of no movement. You know what I mean? Like by the government entities. And so a 15-year-old girl named Mary Jane Dwick took up a collection very small amounts from a large number of people. And when the money was raised, and it took two years to do so, her gravestone was finally put in the Common Burying Ground Cemetery. And it is quite a beautiful one. It is beautiful. There's a ship's anchor, and it says, Ida Lewis, the grace darling of America, keeper of Lime Rock Lighthouse, Newport Harbor, born February 25th, 1842, died August 24th, 1911, erected by her many kind friends. Hmm. Rude served as the interim keeper. Um, he couldn't really stay. He was too sad. He ended up moving in with some friends on the mainland and um, becoming the recipient of all of Andrew Carnegie's money that she had saved for him and his foundation decided that the money could continue going to Rude in homage to Ida Lewis. So he was taken care of for the rest of his life. The real replacement, the official replacement, was a man named Evard Jansen, and he served until the light was actually decommissioned in 1927. And he and his wife had a baby girl while they were living on Lime Rock, and they named her Ida Lewis Jansen. That's a tribute. In 1920, 
Edith Wharton wrote a novel called Age of Innocence, talking about the Gilded Age elite in Newport, and Ida Lewis was written into that story. In the book, Newland Archer is staring out at the harbor, and he sees Lime Rock, and the book makes mention of Ida Lewis living there towards the end of her life. Cool. In 1924, Lime Rock, the island, was renamed Ida Lewis. Why is that? Well, they wanted to name the lighthouse in Ida Lewis's honor. But there's a rule. The lighthouses cannot be named after people, so the whole island had to be renamed after her first. That's quite a loophole. (laughs) It is. And three years after that, Ida Lewis Lighthouse was decommissioned. But the building still stood. It was starting to get run down, and it was bought by a group of people who built a dock out to it, finally. The home was rehabbed, and the Ida Lewis Yacht Club was opened. Its flag is a lighthouse surrounded by 18 stars to represent her 18 reported saves. But it's estimated that at least 25 people were saved by Ida Lewis. Not to mention the untold thousands and perhaps tens of thousands more that were saved by her diligence in keeping the light lit. A more recent tribute in 1996, there was a new class of vessel, the Keeper class, and the very first one whose job it is to check the buoys and make sure the lights are still on. It's named the Ida Lewis whose crew petitioned to restore Ida Lewis's gravestone as it had been deteriorating over the years. So in 1996, she was remembered by the people on the boat named after her. I think that's a very nice circle. Mm -hmm. Um, The last officially manned lighthouse, the Boston Light, was tended by the Coast Guard by hand until 1998. And the last civilian keeper in the United States one Frank Schubert, died as recently as 2003. It was the end of an era. And now it is time for media. And as usual, we will start with books. The first book that I used is The Keeper of Lime Rock by Lenore Scomel. It is not to be confused with The Lighthouse Keeper's Daughter, The Remarkable True Story of American Heroine Ida Lewis by Lenore Scovel, because it's the same book. I accidentally bought both of them. I didn't. Oh. I know. One was different editions, but different titles. One was from 2002. The other's from 2010. And are they functionally the same yes. book? Yes, they are essentially the same book. Mm-hmm. Just with a different cover. I've seen I've seen the cover of the other one. We both have one of them. <laughs> yeah, I they my library didn't have them, so I bought them. So now I have two editions of the same book. You should give one away, like a little giveaway. I should. How am I going to do that? Watch the uh, lounge for more details on how to get Susan's book. <laughs> Um, I have another book called Women Who Kept the Lights, an Illustrated History of Female Lighthouse Keepers by Mary Lewis Clifford and J. Candace Clifford. Our woman who kept the lights is really only a few pages of the book, um, but the rest of it is very interesting. After all, there's a lot of ground to cover there, and we couldn't certainly go into them all, but that's a good book if you want to learn more about their lives. There's also um, a great, well, I think it's great, graphic novel called Ida Lewis Guards the Shore, Courageous Kid of the Atlantic by Jessica Gunderson. And 
It is not a very advanced level book as to its text. I would almost say probably fourth or fifth grade reading level. Mm -hmm. So a really good entry level book. My son loved, loved, loved the graphic novel of Robinson Crusoe. And that's how he got into those kind of things. And Swiss Family Robinson, too. He had a graphic novel. There's graphic novels of Jane Austen. They're for every speed. That's the only way I got through Northanger Abbey. I think uh, that's a tough one. <laughs> yeah. But in, as a graphic novel, it was very compelling, easy to read. I don't know. I did it. I did it. There is a middle grade book. It's called Rowing to the Rescue by Doris Licamelli. And there's another picture book that I liked. It's called The Bravest Woman in America by Marissa Moss, illustrations by Andrea Uren. There is a biography called, confusingly enough, The Heroine of Lime Rock that was written right at the height of her fame in 1869 when everyone was badgering her, badgering her, badgering her. How many times is she going to answer the same 10 questions? And finally, when a man came to her and offered to write the official authorized biography, she gratefully accepted. That man was named George Brewerton. And It has one of those titles. You can read it online. We'll link you up. It's not very long at all. It just goes through um, her rescues. But you know how the titles were really long back then? This one is Ida Lewis. Being a history of her life and rescues with the public and private testimonials, her humane exertions have called forth to which is added in interesting extracts from the numerous letters received by Miss Lewis from almost every state in the union prepared from information and documents furnished by herself. Gee, It's almost longer than the book. <laughs> but the title you will see on every page is simply The Heroine <laughs> of Lime Rock. There is a book of historical fiction called, confusingly enough, The Lighthouse Keeper's Daughter by Hazel Gaynor. And it actually incorporates the character that we spoke of, Grace Darling, and her rescue in 1838. And then the book flashes forward to 1938 in Newport, Rhode Island, where the main character is sent to stay with a relative of hers named Harriet, who is an assistant lighthouse keeper. There is a play called Ida Wally by a woman named Maggie Kiernan, and I am dreadfully afraid that her... Um, momentum was really pulled short by COVID, and I hope that gets geared back up. Mm. Yeah, it would be a good story. There's a documentarian named Marion Gagnon that produced a film called Ida Lewis, Keeper of the Light. And we'll link you to a C-SPAN interview in which Ms. Gagnon talked about her work. And we can link you to the actual documentary. It's on YouTube. On Ida Lewis's 175th birthday, which was February 25th, 2017, there was a Google Doodle about Ida Lewis. And it's really cute. And (laughs) it's like an animated one. It's a little video. Oh, my gosh. Um, I didn't click through this. And then it ends. The Bravest Woman in America, 1881. It's very cute. It shows her getting her medals and her uh, looking out of the lighthouse and rowing through the ice and saving people. Help, help. We're flailing. It's really cute. People drowning. It's really cute. I talked about this earlier, Rhode Island Lighthouse History. Uh, They have the entire Harper's Weekly article digitized. They have a lot of things digitized on there about Ida, including uh, birth records and death records of her family. That's why I trusted their 600 feet (laughs) measurement. That's 
said that it was 600 feet. But there's lots of information, not only about Lime Rock, but about other lighthouses called Rhode Island Lighthouse History, I think, dot com. So I have marked a place um, called the United States Lighthouse Society dot org. And I just discovered, and I was late to the party, when we were on our trip to Boston, that there is a little passport you can buy and you can get stamps at national parks, um, distinct stamps to prove you've been somewhere or to keep as a little souvenir of your travels. Well, evidently, the United States Lighthouse Society also has a passport. And every time you visit a lighthouse, there is a distinctive stamp only given at that lighthouse that you can fill your passport with. Oh, wow. Very cool. Yeah. There's also information as to lighthouses you can stay in overnight and the history of some. It's a pretty cool website. I would like to stay in a lighthouse during the summer yeah. month only. <laughs> That's right. Or we could just build a fire just to get a little warm. Yes. Yeah, I think it'd be fun. I can provide you a link if you want it about the school program in Newport and how extensive it was. I also went into the history of bathing suits. <laughs> also quite interesting. And um, let's see, did I have something else? Oh, yeah. Um, the architecture of Newport and the um, the colonial architecture of where Ida Lewis grew up and then transforming into, of course, the marble cottages um, of Bellevue Avenue. I'm going to go find her grave. I'm actually going to Newport this weekend. So I've been there after you hear this. <laughs> I don't usually listen to podcasts about our subjects, but I did for this one. And I stumbled across this very charming podcast. It's called Legends, Folklore, and History of New England. But it's done by two tweens, two sisters who live in Providence. They have about 48 episodes. They've been doing it since September of 2020. It was so cute. I'll link you up to their show. It was it was adorable. I subscribed. But I think, you know, for kids to hear kids doing podcasts, yeah. I think oh, it's a yeah. really good thing. Yeah. I don't have anything else. And in closing, let me leave you with part of the eulogy given at her funeral by the Reverend W.F. Geisler. As the light that she so faithful was a beacon to the mariner with the circle of its reach, so the light of her brave, unselfish spirit became an inspiration of courage to the whole world, the fame of her deeds having filled it. She, who seldom went beyond the limits of her native city, became a citizen of the world, her name a household treasure, because she kept the light shining and feared not the duty perilous. She achieved immortality. Thanks for listening. Bye. If you liked what you heard today and felt like you learned something, tell a few friends about us, won't you? Or leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. I am currently sort of obsessed with lighthouses. And of course, here right in the middle of the country, there is not a lighthouse to be had. So if you by any chance have any pictures of yourselves touring any lighthouses anywhere in the world, I would love to see them. You can join the History Chicks Podcast Lounge at Facebook if you would like to share those with us or send us an email at chicks at thehistorychicks.com. If you're over at Twitter, you will be bantering only with Susan at thehistorychicks with an X. And I am going to try to get this Pinterest board up while I'm on the airplane to see my friend in Seattle. I might just get to see a lighthouse there. The song in the middle is Burning Light by Cosmic Beats. And the song at the end is Lost and Found and Lost by The Selden Plan. 
See you next time. Keep these feet on side